Greetings, family. Welcome to today's clip. Today we're going to be listening to a clip, a lady called Barbara O'Neill from Australia. She's a nutritionist, uh, spirit, soul, and body, gets into the DNA. She has about seven or eight absolutes. Number eight, trust and divine power. Two, use of water. Excuse me, that's seven. Six, having a proper diet. Five, exercise. Four, rest. Three, temperance. And that's one of Benjamin Franklin's deal, temperance. Three, two, sunshine. And one, pure air. And right now she's giving us an overview about what muscles are. That muscles have uh, no memory. Or no age limit they respond the way they're made incredibly strong incredibly amazing uh, appreciate and bless and thank God for our muscles <clears throat> so here's Barbara O'Neill from Australia <clears throat> living springs retreat let me begin with a statement that is a true statement, and I hope you all remember it. Muscle knows no age. In other words, whether you're 9 or 90, you can have a strong, fit, healthy body. It's not a bad idea to Google 100-year-old athletes and just have a look at what they're doing. Because <laughs> no one here is, is actually 100. My offsider Amelia, who worked with me for five years, She's a naturopath, she got married. <laughs> she had a little app on her phone, just a photo of two women. Both of them were 80. One of them was overweight, hunched over with a walking stick. And the other one, she had like a sports bra crop top on and then um, uh, jogging pants on. And you could count her abdominal muscles. She was, <laughs> both of them were 80. Muscle knows no age. So whether you're 8 or 80, you can have a strong, fit body. And I believe that it's very important for us to prepare for our latter years. How many people don't do that? And their latter years, unfortunately, are spent in misery. We need to be preparing for our latter years. And one of the probably most effective ways to do that is to keep the body strong, fit, of course, giving it lots of water and nourishing food, and we've looked at that. But what is the best form of exercise? A lot of people say to me, I don't exercise because I just don't have time. So I'm going to show you a form of exercise today that only takes 15 minutes a day. Are you interested? No, yeah. oh, I'm very interested. We used to do half hour a day. And one of the reasons I started exercising, yes, I didn't actually officially exercise because I thought I'm always busy, I'm in the garden, I'm running here, running there. And this happened to me probably about 15 years ago now. I went to New Zealand and the lady I stayed with said to me, I do a 5K walk every morning, would you like to join me? It's through the forest. I said, I would love to. I don't have to get the kids up, I don't have to put the washing on the line, I don't have to get the breakfast going because I still had a few teenagers at home then. Well, after about three kilometres, I could hardly keep up with her. And she was twice my size, 10 years younger. 
The next day when I woke up, oh, I could hardly move. I could hardly move. She said, are you coming, Barbara? And I said, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> How can I not go? I'm the health teacher. I'm in their town giving health lectures. Anyway, I definitely couldn't keep up with her this morning. And every time she turned around, she said, are you going? Yeah, yeah fine, fine. Oh dear, did it hurt. It hurt very much. She had a friend with her. I just lagged way behind. I learnt my lesson. From that time on, I've exercised every day. That's when I realised being busy all day is not enough. I acknowledge if, you're, if you work as a gardener <laughs> and you're, you're hoeing into garden beds and lifting uh, certainly there, there are some some jobs where yeah you, you are exercising a lot if you're a personal trainer well, yeah, yeah you don't have to take a special time every day but even massages uh, massage therapists they still need to do that that daily exercise so what is this form of exercise my husband and i started to do a half hour walk every day so how excited was I when I found, well, there's one that only takes 15 minutes. And let me tell you one other benefit I received when I began to implement an exercise program. My feet were always cold. I was always sitting in our little ensuite with my feet in the warm water, warming them up. I always cold. I started exercising and guess what? I don't have cold feet anymore. I don't sit on the little ensuite with my feet in hot water anymore. Mind you, I go to great lengths to make sure I'm warm, absolutely. I used to leave home. Now, we were in Melbourne at the time. That's right down the bottom of Australia in the state of Victoria. And most of the time when I walked, it was pitch black outside. Because when I came home, I thought, how am I going to do this? I've got to get the kids up, I've got to put the wash on, I've got to start the breakfast. So the only way I could do it was get up a little bit earlier. So I started to walk at 5.30 and it was pitch black outside. But what I found was when, once you start walking, your eyes soon adjust because it's a hassle taking a torch. I'd leave home and it was cold and dark. I'd have a scarf on, I'd have a hat on, I'd have gloves on. And when I'm coming back, this is after half an hour, well, the scarf's off, the hat's off, the, the gloves are being taken off. And I'd come into the house going, whoa, it's hot in here. <laughs> no one else was thinking that. I have a friend, his name's Dr. Jonathan Gibbs, and he did a PhD on the effect of exercise in the cell. And he told me this. He said, when you do that in the morning, a network of capillaries is opened that equals the distance around planet Earth. Well, I can hardly get my mind around that one. So where are these capillaries? They're in your extremities. They're in your fingertips. They're in your brain. They're in your eyes. So it increases eyesight. It increases he hearing. It increases every single body function. Leviticus 17.11 states that the life of the flesh is in the blood. It moves blood. So yes, how excited was I when I found... Only 15 minutes. Well, let's have a look at this. It's called high intensity interval training, or often called HIIT training. And the first documented evidence of the HIIT training was probably uh, before the war. Some German trainers were training their athletes in it. The war came, a lot was lost. And then the next time 
that was documented was a Japanese trainer called Tabata. Now, in many gyms, they still have the Tabata protocol. And he was a trainer for his girls in the Olympic Games, and they were doing figure skating. And he discovered that if they did the hit training, they had an edge. So what did he do? So the high intensity, he got his girls to do that for about 20 seconds. The recovery was probably oh, 60, 60 seconds. And the uh, cycle, meaning it's done for a cycle of, would be about six. So that's six cycles of 20 seconds high intensity, 60 seconds recovery. He found when it came time for the Olympic Games, they had an edge. They had an edge on the other athletes. And listen, isn't that what it's all about? Everyone that goes to the Olympic Games is the best that their country has. And sometimes they win by split seconds. Mm -hmm. So finding something that gave his girls an edge was, was, was very important. I read about the HIIT training, probably the first book I read about it was Dr. Doug McGuff's book, uh, Body by Science. And he's a doctor, I think he's, he's a heart doctor. And he started to, he found out about this. So what he did was he did 30 seconds high intensity, 90 seconds recovery for a cycle of six. And what I have found in my reading that that's probably uh, a time that most people come out would be the very best. Most of the most of the hit uh, hit training experiments have been done on an exercise bike. So if someone's a little unsteady on their feet, their ankles, their knees, their hips not working well, the exercise bike they're able to hold on. They can go as fast as they can, and then they do the recovery time. So what is the high intensity? It's running for your life. It's going for as hard and as fast as you can, whether that be swimming, whether that be running, running up hills. When I was in Mount Isa, Mount Isa is near the top of Australia, right in the middle, and there's a lot of mining there. So they've got these hills that basically look like that. And I think it's all the piles of dirt that came out of the mine. So I was there doing um, or giving some health lectures. So say this is me here, this is about how big I am. So I would walk up them and by the time I got to there, I was high and I was experiencing high intensity. So I, and that's not even running, that's just walking. That's almost climbing, it was that steep. And then I'd stop and I'd have my recovery time. So what's recovery time? Well, the research shows that the best recovery time is when you're moving a bit. So what I would do is I'd, I'd do my stretches. I'd do my stretches. I'd over, over, I can't do much because I'm all wired up. But I would do my stretches. And because all my exercise is being done on my legs, I might do the, you know, the 10 down and the 10 up and the 10 back. So the best recovery time is when you're doing it slowly. So Michael and I, we run up the hills because we're in the mountains, so there are hills and dips, and we run up the hill and then we walk down the hill. And then we're, by the time we've walked down the hill, it's easily 90 seconds, maybe a bit more. We know we're ready to go again because our breathing. You're breathing and your heart's settled down. When you think you can go for it again, then you're ready for your next high intensity. 
And so what I would do on the hills, then I would do another. So I would get two high intensities up here. I'd walk along for a little while and then go down and then I'd find another one. So when I'm presenting at Mount Isa, I say to the people, you don't even have to run here. <laughs> All you have to do is, is, walk up, is walk up those hills. So it's whatever it takes to get your heart rate up and your, your breathing increased. When I started to do this, because reading the book, it's such an inspiration to read it. He says, when you start implementing this, we're not going to be able to hold you down because of, of, of what it's going to do for your body. So I couldn't wait to try it. Now, when I got to 22nd, I'm running up a hill. My body's actually saying to me, I think that'll do. I get to 25 seconds, my body says, this is getting ridiculous. I get to 30 seconds and I... I mm. If I don't count, I don't get that far. <laughs> because I'll listen to the body that says, yeah, that, that'll, that'll do. In the Framingham Heart Study, I've quoted this study a couple of times, 30,000 people, little town over many years. They found that by the age of 50, 40% of, or most people had lost 40% of their lung capacity. Why is that? Because people never do what you experience when you get to the end of your 30 seconds. Those lungs are just stretched wide open. Those little bronchioles right at the end are being forced to to start working, high chest breathers can find that the bottom half of their lungs can almost go into dormancy. So no wonder by the age of 50, many have lost 40% of their lung capacity. The, the study showed that by the age of 80, most had lost 60% of their lung capacity. Remember oxygen, the most vital element needed for life? Well, and that's where we get it, through our lungs. Recovery. Your recovery time is the, your indicator of your fitness. Dr. Al Sears in his book, Pace, he's considered the exercise doctor, his book is a bestseller. What does pace mean? P is progressive, this is progressive. The more you do it, the stronger you will get. I don't, I don't know whether this has ever got easy, <laughs> certainly easier than when I first started. But it's the recovery time shortens. So your recovery time is your fitness indicator. So pace is, P is progressive. A is acceleration. You are accelerating. This is no gentle stroll. You're accelerating. So when Martha and I are running up the hill, we don't talk then. He's way ahead of me because his legs are about four inches longer than mine. I say to him, you must love running with me. It makes you feel like an Olympic runner. <laughs> So you are accelerating, and C is cardiopulmonary. So cardio meaning the heart muscle. There's one way to strengthen the heart, there's no other way, and that is exercise. So exercise strengthens the heart. I'm gonna give you a story to illustrate. My son Peter, about 10 years ago when he was 25, he was training for a triathlon, so he was running up and down the hills behind Brisbane, that's where he lived at the time. Now he's a tyler. And he was dismantling an old vanity unit that had a big chip off it, huge chip. And it was from about the 50s, you know, those old ceramic ones. He 
he got it out and he didn't realise how slippery it was and it fell and it hit his ankle. In fact, I think if he hadn't have had a bone there, it might have taken the whole foot off. And the blood hit the roof. And he called out to my son, James, my elder son, James. James said, I'm on the phone, mate. Pete said, I think you'd better come quickly. And I tell you that because it was a few minutes before James got in the room. And when he got in the room, he said, this little bathroom, the whole roof and walls were sprayed with this most lovely decoration of blood, <laughs> little sprinkles. When they went to hospital, bound it up, got to hospital, the nurse kept taking Peter's pulse. It was 50 beats per minute. And she couldn't believe that it was 50 beats per minute. Why was it 50 beats per minute? Because Peter's been running up and down hills. So stronger the heart gets, the less it has to pump. Because every pump is so powerful. It was so powerful, the blood hit the roof. In fact, if Peter's resting heart rate had been uh, 70, 80 beats per minute, it just would have, <laughs> wouldn't have even hit the ceiling. Well, Peter didn't do the triathlon. <laughs> to fix his foot. In fact, the, the doctor couldn't believe that he hadn't cut any tendons. He kept getting him to move his big toe. Oh yes, that needed a, it needed a few layers of stitches, that one. Aren't we glad that we have hospitals and doctors when, when we have a severe injury? Absolutely. And Peter was so glad that, the, that he had an injection of uh, local anaesthetic, you know, we, we certainly don't quibble emergency medicine. And the doctor couldn't believe that it had missed the main, the main tendons. And I said to Peter, that was your mother's prayers. Every morning, <laughs> she places you in the hand of God. But it's an illustration to show that the, the more you exercise, the stronger that heart gets. And when it's strong, it, it doesn't have to beat much because every beat is so strong with the delivery of blood. It is said we only have so many beats per lifetime. So you can see the fitter the person, the, the longer the life. And I'd like to suggest the better quality of life because of what exercise does to the body. So pace, progressive acceleration of cardiopulmonary. So there's the lungs. And it was in that book and other books where, where he quoted the study on the Framingham study. So you can prevent that lung capacity loss by exercising every day. And if you've lost it, you can regain it by the high-intensity exercise. So progressive acceleration of cardiopulmonary exertion. You are exerting yourself. There's the pace. But what I'm ever thankful to Doug McGuff for is he takes you inside the cell. So I'm going to take you inside the cell now. So here's the cell. We've looked at the cell a few times this week. And the glucose goes in. It goes through a 20-step pathway. And the 20-step pathway gives us two units of energy. The end result of the 20-step pathway is a chemical form of glucose called pyruvate. The chemical form of glucose called pyruvate is fed into the powerhouse, called the powerhouse because this eight-step pathway delivers to us an impressive 36 units of energy. 
We looked at the fact that this is an anaerobic pathway. Anaerobic pathway is the 20-step pathway, meaning no oxygen. It produces energy by the process of fermentation, whereas the 8-step pathway is an aerobic pathway because it uses oxygen. We also had a look at the fact that when excess glucose is going in, it's stored little, like a little bunch of grapes and they're, they're little bunches of, of, um, of glucose just waiting there. And I'm sure they were used on your morning walk, on my morning exercise this morning, because we only gave you broth last night. And as you start to move that body, the only time this could be interfered with is if you started to walk without drinking water. And we're going to look at water in a minute after the break. It's vital that you drink water. One lady said to me, I won't be able to walk in the morning because I faint. And I said, well, do you have water? She said, no, I don't like water. <laughs> when when, when you've got to have water, the body, the body needs its water. But when you drink that water in the morning and then go on your walk and your body is starting to, to uh, work, it needs more fuel, those little molecules of glucose are plucked and through the pathway, plucked and through the pathway. It's a wonderful process. We also looked at the fact that on a very high carbohydrate diet, the excess glucose when the glycogen stores are full is stored as fat. So I want to show you how this high-intensity uh, exercise program, I want to show you how it affects the cell and how it can actually reverse that whole process that we looked at earlier. So I need to tell you a few things as I give the illustration. So what I didn't tell you the other day is that this eight-step pathway is very slow. The 20-step pathway is very fast. And as we're sitting, standing here at the moment, they're feeding into each other quite nicely. But when you start running for your life, cycling for your life, rebounding for your life, swimming as fast as you can, both pathways speed up. The 20-step speeds up, the 8-step speeds up, but there's a rate-setting enzyme in there that will always keep this one faster and this one slower. So what happens now is more pyruvate is being made than can be fed into the 8-step. And so the body stores that excess pyruvate as lactic acid. You've heard of lactic acid? We've all heard of lactic acid. Too much building up, that can hurt, can't it? We've felt that. So I think one of the most amazing things about this high-intensity interval training is what happens when you're in recovery. And don't we love recovery? When you're in recovery time, getting your breath back, letting your body settle down a bit, the liver converts that lactic acid back to pyruvate and feeds it into the powerhouse. Which means when you're in recovery time, you're cells are burning just as much fuel as when you're running for your life. Isn't that good news? That's good news, but there's other good news too, and that is, it's mopping up your lactic acid. So it doesn't have an, it doesn't have an opportunity to build up in your tissues. Yesterday we had a look at how disease thrives in an acid environment. 
So this form of exercise is the best form of exercise for many reasons. And one of the reasons that gives the athletes an edge, one of the reasons that's going to give you an edge on your day, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, one of the reasons it does that is because not so much, well, definitely what's happening in time intensity, but what's also happening in recovery time. I'm very thankful to Doug McGuff and the scientists that went inside the cell to find out where's our why. Where's our why? <laughs> to find out why it is such a powerful form of exercise. Not only is it a powerful form of exercise, but it doesn't take long. You do the maths on that. I'm going to be generous here. What, what, what's this? This is no more than 15 minutes in a day. We have 24 hours in a day. So no one's got any excuse. So let's continue. So you're getting to the end of your first 30 seconds. You're plucking your glycogen stores. You're getting to the end of your second set of 30 seconds high intensity. Your glycogen stores are being depleted, but we need more fuel. And so what the body does now, it causes a release of the human growth hormone. The human growth hormone is very active when we're growing. But when we stop growing, I stopped growing at 16, that probably doesn't surprise you. My son William grew two inches from 19 to 22. Boys usually grow a bit longer. It goes into retirement. But when you do the high intensity exercise, it's pulled out of retirement. Let me show you what it does. What the human growth hormone does is it causes a release of hormone sensitive lipase. Hormone sensitive lipase is an enzyme that breaks down fat cells. Yesterday we looked at sublingual lipase. Remember that enzyme that breaks down the short chain and medium chain fatty acids in the saturated fats. We looked at pancreatic lipase that breaks down the long chain fatty acids. We're looking at another lipase now, and that is hormone sensitive lipase that's released to break down your fuel stores. Isn't that what fat is? <laughs> it's the most amazing fuel depot in the human body. But how many people are carrying a lot of weight they're actually starving in the land of plenty. They can't access their fuel supplies. They're always tied. How do we access it? This is how we access it. Causing a release of the human growth hormone. So hormone sensitive lipase is act activated. And hormone sensitive lipase, as it is activated, it switches over to burning fat, it becomes a fat burner. So one of the reasons why when the human growth hormones release, the body starts burning fat as fuel is because of something we looked at yesterday. Remember glucose? Glucose burns in the body at four calories per gram. Remember fat? Fat burns in the body as nine calories per gram. Now you'll find that information in every weight loss book in psychedelic colours as to the reason why if you want to lose weight you shouldn't eat fat. But they don't understand what a calorie is. You know what a calorie is? 
interesting unit of energy. So if you want a high energy food, what do you eat? Ah, uh, that. <laughs> you see, it's a misconception. No wonder the body starts burning fat as fuel because fat's going to give more than twice the units of energy that glucose will give. Because this person's running for their life. We need, a, we need a potent fuel here. The human growth hormone also increases the body's ability to process protein. We've looked at the importance of protein this week, the importance of eating sufficient protein. We've looked at the importance of not drinking with the meals or we'll water down our hydrochloric acid so, and then it won't be able to break down our protein effectively. And now we're looking at another aspect. The high intensity interval training causes a release of the human growth hormone which increases the body's ability to utilize protein. The human growth hormone also increases the circulation of the blood to the skin. Now the effect of this is it slows down aging. No wonder the movie stars pay $1,000 a week for this human growth hormone because their profession is dependent on them looking good and you can see this helps you look good. Well, I'm offering it to you cut price today. 15 minutes high intensity interval training a day will cause a release of that human growth horm hormone and that human growth hormone will remain active for 24 hours. People ask me, how often do you exercise? I say daily. Daily. <laughs> daily, because I want that human growth hormone. So when people say, Barbara, what do you put on your skin? What's your moisturizer? I say, nothing, nothing. What I do, I spend my money on good quality nuts and seeds and avocados and olive oils, you're lovely cold pressed. And I exercise every morning. How could I miss out on my daily human growth hormone? So if it's a gale outside, if it's snowing outside, then I go to the rebounder. I do my push-ups. Do you do push-ups, ladies? I do my stretches, and I know the twins have shown you some amazing stretches. They're very good on those stretches. I, I hurt my back the other day, lifted something too heavy, and so Erin got up on the table. She's up on the table, and she's pulling my legs this way and that way. <laughs> Whoa. She said, am I doing too hard? I said, I'm sorry, but I'll never say you're doing it too hard. I'll just breathe. One, two. <laughs> so stretches are great. So no matter what the weather, move that body every day. Get it into a movement because you will reap the benefits all through the day when you do that little nugget every single morning. I had a couple do our program. She was a young couple. She was 79. He was 82. And they swim for two kilometres in the sea at Coffs Harbour, which is a coastal town in Australia. And it's about the same temperature as this. They don't get snow. We only get snow way down the bottom and even only on the mountaintops. So they swim for two kilometres every morning. I said, no wonder you guys look good. <laughs> They hardly had a line on their face. They were little, obviously, you can have a few lines, but I was, I was amazed at their skin. 
they were with us for two weeks. When they first came, they stopped the cholesterol-lowering meds, they stopped the blood thinner because they were drinking more water. Midweek, they decided to stop their blood pressure med as well, and because their blood sugars were coming right down, stopped that medication. I tell you, the second week, they just came alive. They went home younger than they came. But I'd like to show you one of the most powerful, well, it is acknowledged to be the most powerful form of exercise there is. And everyone can do this one, and it's called rebounding. Now, why is the rebounder, or the little mini trampoline, such a powerful form of exercise? Strength comes from one one activity and one activity alone, and that is defying gravity. Isn't that what you're doing on the push-ups? Defying gravity. Have a, have a look at a baby. I've had six babies, and I know within a couple of days, what are they trying to do? Put their heads up. They're trying to put their head up. In fact, you have to be careful because they put their head up and then they might bang it on your collarbone. And then it's not long when you put them on the floor, they start to roll. Then they start to get up on their hands and knees. And then it's not long after that, they're trying to pull themselves up. They're constantly defying gravity, aren't they? It is gravity that causes strength. And then you put them in the little cot and they start jumping, <laughs> jumping in the cot. I've come to the conclusion that people age because they stop jumping. What's the old saying? We should jump for joy. So why is the rebounder so powerful? Well, three, three forces come together with the rebounding, because I always want to know why. Three forces come together. One force is defying gravity. So defying gravity is one of the forces. There's another force that comes to play, and that is acceleration. So when you're leaping off the mat, up into the air, you're accelerating. And then just as you get to the top of your jump, you experience deceleration. So acceleration and deceleration. You know acceleration when you're in the plane. I think my favorite time in the plane is when they take off. We go so fast and watch that, that land go away from you. So there's your, there's your uh, acceleration. Deceleration is where you, when you've landed and they put the brakes on and you're, whoa, <laughs> you're flattened against the seat. Einstein says that these three forces have the same effect on the body. There is not a cell in the body that is not affected by the by these, these three forces. And that's what makes it such a powerful form of exercise. Because constantly, constantly, as you're jumping like this, the cells are being, they're being challenged, but challenging the cells strengthens the cells. So let me show you what the rebounder also does. Here's your lymphatic system. Your lymphatic system is your body's vacuum cleaner. And your lymphatic system has little gates like this all along. Now your blood capillary system looks very similar, but it doesn't have those little gates. And your blood capillary system has muscles either side of it. So when your heart pumps, 
pumping the blood along the capillaries, those muscles are affected and the, and the pumping happens all the way through the system. We can feel a pulse, can't we? We can feel a pulse in our groin, we can feel a pulse in our... And it's all affected because of the heart. The heart is the pump and it pumps the blood through the body. Did you know you have a second heart? It's your calf muscle. Do you ever wonder how the blood gets back to the heart? You see, your arterial system is the blood coming away from the heart and your venous system is the blood coming back to the heart. It is your calf muscles. And I think you'll agree with me when you've been on the rebounder, those calf muscles, they're constantly working. So your second heart is getting those blood back. That's why rebounding is so effective for varicose veins. You don't get you don't get varicose arteries, do you? You get varicose veins. It's that venous system that's affected. And that's why in the plane, they tell you to, to move your foot, don't you? Because when you move your foot, you're, you're moving your calf muscle. Now, in that pump and that heart muscle, they're causing this muscular system around the capillary network to keep moving that blood because the blood is the life of the flesh. But not so your lymphatic system. Your lymphatic system does not have a muscular system around it and your lymphatic system doesn't have a pump. And your lymphatic system sweeps away waste from the tissues. Remember, it's the body's vacuum cleaner and it dumps the waste into the lymph nodes in our neck, in our armpits, in our groin. There are lymphocytes, which is a white blood cell that can deal with the waste, dump it into the blood, and then we sweat out the waste, we urinate out the waste, out our colon comes the waste. That's how the whole process happens. When you wake up in the morning, these little gates are all closed, which means the waste can't get out. Just getting out of bed, moving your arms and legs, opens them a little bit. But the activity that opens every single gate in the whole body is the rebounder. So when you're on the rebounder, and let me get on the rebounder and show you. So if you're not used to it, you can just go like that. That's called the health bounce. But as you get better at it, I'm not gonna jump really, <laughs> really high, but you can, you get better at it. You get kids, have you seen what kids will do on this? You know, at first, kids are a little bit out of balance, and you might be a little bit out of balance, but the more you do it, the better your balance will be. You can also start by this, just going like that. But this little one's called the health bounce. But when you start jumping, when you're to the height of your jump, every gate opens. And when you hit the mat again, every gate closes. Isn't that incredible? You only have to rebound for one minute in the morning to get that lymphatic system activated for the whole day. And once that lymphatic system is activated, every movement you make, just scratching your head, turning around, duh, 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 it's keeping the movement going. So this, again, is called the health bounce. If, if you can't do this, you're a little unstable, just find a post to hold on to, or you can get a, a, I think there's another rebounder downstairs that has a frame and you can hold on to that frame. I like not to, because I don't want to become dependent on the frame, but if it's too hard for you, by all means, start with the, 
start with the frame. See, even doing this health bounce, I can feel my <laughs> second heart, my calf muscles strengthening. Some people say, I'm not going to get on the rebounder because um, you know, I'm out of balance. Well, guess how you get into balance? By rebounding. If you're not used to this, at first you might be a little unstable, but the more you do it, you will notice you, you will get your balance. Your balance is set by the bottom of your feet and by the fine mechanisms in your ear. And so rebounding resets those fine mechanisms in your ear and resets the, the soles of your feet. Jeffrey's given me permission just to put, put my shoes on on the mat just while I'm giving this uh, lecture. But you're best on bare feet and your, your feet spray out like that. But also it strengthens your arch because when you're bouncing, you're bouncing on your toes. There's not a part in the body that is not affected by rebounding. And these three forces that come together and the effect that it has on the lymphatic system puts it in the class of the most powerful form of exercise there is. And you might say, well, Barbara, most of your work is being done with your legs. What about your upper body? It's all affected, but let me show you how you can uh, strengthen your biceps. So you jump with your with your palms down. As you jump, that strengthens the bicep muscle. Yes, you can do your triceps too, and that's where you put your palm up, and you jump with your, your palm up, and that strengthens your tricep muscles. And often, I will twist as I do, so I twist like this, and that, that helps with the spine. And so when my arms get tired out there, then, then I will do that, but I'll often do 10 10 uh, biceps, 10 triceps. You can also strengthen your eyesight. How do you strengthen your eyesight? Now I'm not doing much and, and I'm fairly fit, but can you see in my breath? So it doesn't seem like you're hardly doing anything, but it has a powerful effect on the body. So how do you strengthen your eyesight? So you can also just do this. Anyone can do that, where you're not, not even jumping, but you're having an effect. How do you strengthen your eyesight? So right now, looking out that door there, I will focus on that tree. I'll focus my eyes on the leaves of the tree. And the, so when I'm doing it, the tree is standing still, but the big trees in the background are jumping and that lamp's jumping and that lamp's jumping. So what I'll do now, after 10 jumps, I'll focus on that lamp and I'll keep that lamp still, and the leaves that were still before are now jumping in the peripheral. Can you see what you do? You, you keep changing your focus, and that strengthens your eyesight. Now, I, I'm, I wear glasses early morning for fine reading. Since I've been doing the changing of the focus, my eyesight has improved. I was just about to go to 250 magnet, mag, magnification but I'm finding that with the changing of the focus on the rebounding I've been able to keep it just the two so it can strengthen your eyesight the best rebounder is the Bellican and I think that's how it's spelled something like that and you'll notice with the the Bellican that we have here 
It's not springs, it's rubber. I call this the Rolls-Royce <laughs> because you get a beautiful, a beautiful bounce. You see, with the rebounder, there's no jarring. One lady said, well, can't I just skip? When you skip, every, every, one, every jump that you take, you, you do get a jarring effect on hips and knees and ankles. That's why if you do run and if you do skip, it must be on the earth because the earth gives. Cement and tar do not. That's where you get really bad jarring. And notice how children run. Have you noticed how children run? They always run on the ball of their feet. I read a book called Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. He's a runner and he was getting lower back, pelvic and hamstring problems. So he took six months off work and decided to investigate worldwide different runners. He wanted to know why he was suffering with hamstring and lower back. And you'll notice that most joggers are padded to encourage heel striking. Have you noticed that? And yet we should be toe striking. So he went to the history books and he found in 1960 and 1964, Abibi Bakila, an African runner, took home gold, both sets of Olympic Games, and he was a barefoot runner. He also investigated other barefoot runners. You run barefoot on the grass, you will never strike with your heel. And what Christopher McDougall does, he goes into the anatomy of the foot, which is very interesting. You see, the foot's been designed to strike on the toe. When you strike on the toe, it strengthens the arch and the ball of the foot has a cushioning effect and the toes spread out to sort of take the fall. But when you strike with your heel, none of that happens. And he discovered that it is heel striking that's causing the hamstring, the pelvic and the lower back problems. Isn't that interesting? And out of that book came the barefoot runner craze. And the barefoot runner is basically runners that have a really thin sole. So I have my barefoot runners here. So I'll show you. When I buy, sorry, I've been running in the dirt this morning. When I buy a runner, I always go like that in the shop. That's what I want. And that barefoot runner allows me to, to run on my toes. When I started to do the, sorry, bit of dirt for my shoes. When I started to do the barefoot running and got my, uh, my thin sole, it's no fun if there are big rocks on the road. So I go for the smooth bits and I also grass as much as possible. My muscles in my legs got really sore. And I thought, this is really strange. Why, why are my legs sore when I usually exercise every day? And that's when I realized when you, when you toe strike, you use a totally different set of muscles to when you heel strike. Of course, those muscles adapted and that's the amazing thing about the body is its ability to adapt and adjust. We want it to adapt and adjust to the good things. Unfortunately, many have adjusted to the bad things. So the, so if you do run, make sure it's toe striking. And your high intensity, it's actually whatever works for you. But the rebounding again is 
I think every home should have one of one of the rebounders. You can you can put it on its side and you can put it behind the lounge and if the kids come, you know where all the kids will be is on the rebounding. If you go to Bellicon, their website, you'll see classes where they will show you in a lot more detail than I have. I've just basically touched on it. I just wanted to show you why it is such a powerful form of exercise and you'll see a whole lot of different uh, moves and things that you can do. But the, the current figures are saying that three minutes, three times a day is enough. Now that's hardly anything. So how can you put it into there? You can certainly do your 30 seconds high intensity. You saw I didn't seem to do a little, I didn't seem to hardly do anything. And, that, and yet I'm sure you could see that my breath was starting to be catched or, or caught. Um, jogging on the rebounder. So I'm just going to move over to the rebounder again and just give you a tiny little illustration of this. You can... Now if you, if you do that on the rebounder, jogging on the rebounder, well, you, <laughs> you'll definitely get your high intensity. But just leaping high on the, on the rebounder might take a little bit longer to get, to get your heart rate and your um, breathing up, but you certainly um, will get that. Dr. Al Sears, in his book Pace, he gives a story of a lady who did fifth. No, she did seven seconds high intensity, and she needs 15 minutes to recover. Whoa! Not many people are that unfit. You know what the good news is? That's why P means progressive. If she does that every day, she'll get to eight seconds, and then 12 minutes recovery. Can you see what will happen? That's why it's a good idea to note your recovery time. Because as you get fitter, your recovery time will be less and less and less. And that can be um, of a great encouragement to you. The busier my schedule, the busier my program, the more steps I take to get to bed early so that I can get up and do that high intensity. Because I know my day, my performance, my ability to remember, to present, and advice that, that people are asking me for, that's dependent on me going to bed early, getting up very early and asking for God's wisdom through the day, drinking water, doing that high intensity. You, you're just about ready for anything. How many people go into the day totally unprepared? No wonder, no wonder the wheel falls off the wagon the first time a little bit of stress comes away. I maintain that in a well-slept, well-nourished, well-hydrated, well-exercised body, a body that has been surrendered to the great God of heaven, that body copes with stress. Because the, they, it comes, doesn't it? <laughs> it comes every day. But how, how many people are unprepared? And then, and then the wheel falls off the wagon. <laughs> and there's often a lot of mopping up to do with that. I know as a mother with so many children, it was imperative that I take those steps so that I was a calmer mother and I had wisdom for each child because you, you, you do get challenged. Whether you're in the home or whether you're in the work first, you do. So it's important to prepare for your day. So... We have to prepare for tomorrow today. We prepare by having breakfast like a king, lunch like a queen, 
tea or supper, you call it, like a pauper, then we can go to bed early and then you can get up early and do what I just explained, what, what must be done to prepare, for the, to prepare for the day. Who would go to battle without any armour on? <laughs> Is the day a battle? Well, I think we'll all agree, agree that, you know, challenges come through the day. So it's important to be prepared. We're going to have a break now, and after the break, we're going to come back and look at the importance of salt and water. When you consume sugar, you are poisoning your mitochondria. Sugar and cyanide do the same thing. This is the toxin. What are the key negatives when we consume the levels of sugar that many of us are currently consuming? Well, first of all, let's make it very clear that sugar is not the only problem in our diet. It's the big one. It's the 2,000-pound gorilla in our diet. But there's other stuff, too. But sugar is a particularly egregious molecule. Once upon a time, trans fats were the worst thing we consumed. Trans fats are the devil incarnate. Trans fats, the bacteria can't chew it up, which is why they put the trans fats in, all right, so that, you know, it would last forever, you know, the 10-year-old Twinkie. Well, the fact is our mitochondria, our little energy-burning factories inside all our cells, are really refurbished bacteria. We can't chew it up either. So the exact same reason for why they put the trans fats in the food is exactly why you shouldn't eat the food. Now, we know that, and they've come out of our diet. So now, sugar is public enemy number one. So what does sugar do? And the answer is a whole bunch of bad things. The food industry says sugar is energy. Well, they're correct if you're a bomb calorimeter. If you just blow it up, if you explode it, yeah, you get four calories per gram. But we are not bomb calorimeters. Turns out that sugar actually poisons the mitochondria. Okay, it poisons it in th at three separate enzymes that are necessary for mitochondria to do their job. The first one, AMP kinase, which is the fuel gauge on the liver cell. The second one, ACADL, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, which is necessary to get fatty acids into the mitochondria to be able to oxidize them to create energy. And the third one is CPT1, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is the um, enzyme that regenerates carnitine, which is the shuttle mechanism that brings the fatty acids into the mitochondria in the first place. In other words, when you consume sugar, you are poisoning your mitochondria. You are generating less of the chemical energy that our cells get powered by called ATP. So if you're making less ATP, is that energy? It's the opposite of energy. So when you consume sugar, you are actually inhibiting your body's energy production. Can you think of a chemical that 
inhibits your mitochondria and reduces ATP production? Cyanide. 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 Cyanide does that. Okay? Sugar and cyanide do the same thing. Now, obviously, not as severely. Okay, you know, cyanide parts per million keel over and die on the spot. With sugar, you know, it's in the parts per thousand, and you don't keel over on the spot, but you feel lousy, and over time, it's going to take its toll. But ultimately, if you're inhibiting your mitochondria, you are poisoning your body. And we now have the data to show how that occurs. So here's my question to you and your audience. Sugar is in virtually all ultra-processed foods, and ultra-processed foods are now 56% of the UK diet, and the uh, amount of sugar that Brits eat, 62% of it is found in the ultra-processed food category. So my question to you and your audience is, is ultra-processed food food? My view is that it's not really. I, w I would say no, but I know to many people that is super controversial, um, which we're definitely going to talk about. But yeah, on a straight answer, I would say no. Depends on your definition, I guess, because it's energy. Okay. It's got some calories in it, which we consume in our mouth that enable us on one level to, to sort of I guess you're saying it's actually uh, reducing the energy production, the sugar within it anyway. But yeah, on one level, it sustains people and they can actually get on with their days, at least in the short term anyway. Well, you have to know what the definition of food is. So if, if, I, if I had my Webster's Dictionary right here, right now, um, you, you guys, you know, in the UK probably don't use Webster's, you probably have something else. But if I pulled it off the shelf, it would say that the definition of food is the following, and I have no problem with this definition. Substrate that contributes to either the growth or burning of an organism. That's the definition. I have no problem with that definition. It's a fine definition, all right? Substrate that contributes to either the growth or burning of an organism. So we just talked about burning. Sugar does not contribute to the burning of an organism, it actually inhibits the burning of an organism. And Dr. Kevin Hall at the NIH did a study where he showed that when you give people ultra-processed food, they burn less and gain more weight. When everything else is controlled for compared to the same diet in real food, did this in 2019. So ultra-processed food does not contribute to burning. So now let's go to growth. Does ultra-processed food contribute to growth? My colleague, Dr. Efraf Monsenegal-Ornan, who is the uh, chairman of the Department of Nutrition at Hebrew University, Jerusalem, uh, just published three papers in bone research showing that ultra-processed food actually inhibits skeletal growth, inhibits the ability of bones to increase in length and in width. And in addition, we know from the Nutrinet Santé study and many other studies that, in fact, what sugar does is it feeds cancer cells, it hijacks growth. So, sugar doesn't contribute to burning, inhibits it, doesn't contribute to uh, uh, growth, 
inhibits it or hijacks it. So I pose the question to you again, Ranga. Is ultra-processed food food? The new... My original answer, which is no. That is right. It is no. Ding, ding. That's right. But the point is that the food industry, you know, refuses to go there. The populace refuses to go there. The governments refuse to go there. And you and I are both interested in mitigating chronic disease. Yeah. And you are right. If you get people on a real food diet, you can mitigate virtually any and all of their chronic diseases. I completely agree. You give a TEDx talk basically saying you can basically take away somebody's chronic disease. I used to do that in my clinic, you know, when I was practicing routinely. Yeah. But only if they changed the food. And if they didn't change the food, no amount of medicine I threw at them could make a difference. Yeah, I mean, what strikes me as a really key message is that for the majority of what we're buying to feed ourselves and our families is ultra-processed food, whether it's here in the UK or with you in America, and that is contributing to this tsunami of chronic ill health that we're seeing. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty alarming, but what, what I think is so key, Rob, for me is that it's so normalized now. Like it's the norm everywhere, schools, hospitals. In fact, if you want to go down the real food routes, you almost feel like a bit of a, like, you know, if you try to do it with your kids, you actually become a social outcast in, in some ways. It's, yep, and, and I think this is the problem. It's just, it's the norm. We've moved so far away from what we used to do. In fact, maybe this is a good time for you to explain what you used to do when you were eight years old, because I believe you had a granddad who lived in Brooklyn. And every Saturday you would do something which I think beautifully illustrates this point. That's right. So yeah, um, uh, bottom line is I completely agree with you. What we've done is we've normalized it. Once upon a time it was actually not normal to eat ultra processed food and today it is normal. And I remember when that happened because it happened to me. It happened to me in two ways. So on Saturday afternoons, my family would go visit my grandparents who lived about, oh, I don't know, eight miles away in Brooklyn. And my grandfather would walk me down to the corner uh, uh, grocery store to buy a comic book and a six and a half ounce bottle of Coca-Cola. And I remember, you know, pretty much every Saturday afternoon. And that was the big treat, you know, the comic book and the Coca-Cola. That was on Ocean Avenue and Avenue N in Brooklyn. Um, you know, the fact is that that was once a week and it was six and a half ounces all right today you know children are consuming about i think 35 ounces a day uh, you know uh, median so they are getting about six times the amount of sugar that i did from that one coat and they're doing it every day instead of once a week I mean, that's just, can we just pause on that for a second? You're saying you had six ounces once a week, and we're assuming back then that the rest of your diet throughout the week was low in sugar, low in processed foods, sort of a real food diet? Well, my mother worked three jobs, 
And so I ate a lot of Swanson TV dinners when they first came out. And I remember when they came out around 1964. You know, the, the fried chicken, the Salisbury steak. I hated that Salisbury steak. And I actually, she trained me on how to turn the oven on and how to heat them up because often she wasn't home at night. You know, so, you know, to some extent, I was a latchkey kid because my mother worked so hard. Yeah. You know, my father was in Manhattan all day. And so, you know, I basically had to sort of take care of myself. And sometimes I had to eat dinner, you know, out of the freezer. And so I remember, you know, those Swanson TV dinners and, you know, they, they, they were a problem and they're still a problem. Um, so you put the two together. And that was the beginning of, you know, the, uh, shall we say, onslaught of processed food in the United States about the mid-60s. Um, then things picked up even more in 1975 when we started uh, substituting high fructose corn syrup for sucrose because it was half as uh, uh, expensive and it was homegrown. And then finally... The pièce de résistance came in 1977 when uh, the McGovern Commission released its report saying that we all needed to eat less fat to try to prevent cardiovascular disease. Well, when you take the fat out of food, it tastes like cardboard. And so what did the food industry do? It basically replaced the fat with sugar. That's why we ended up with Entenmann's fat-free cakes and, you know, and the like. And that was when the pasta craze, you know, first hit was, you know, refined carbohydrate because it yeah. was, quote, low in fat, et cetera. And, you know, now we're off to the races. And it's just exploded ever since. that's inherently bad in and of itself or is it the yes. excess amounts i mean or is it both right because i think a lot of people might say well look you know what this never used to be a problem right and we, right. we would have the odd sweet treat now and again um right. but so and actually there's quite there's quite a few prominent scientists as, as you're you're well aware where we say actually sugar's not a problem sugar's actually yeah. Completely fine. Yeah, we're working on it. We're working on it. I, I, I have a bone to pick with some of those scientists, and we can argue that and talk about that if you like, um, as to exactly why they say what they say. So here, here's what I can tell you. All right. There are social drinkers, and there are alcoholics. Now, social drinkers can pick up a beer and put it down and they don't need one every day. Alcoholics pick up a whiskey and can't put it down, and they need it three times a day, right? Yeah. Did the one beer that the social drinker drink hurt them? Unlikely. Unlikely, unlikely. And the reason it's unlikely is because there is a what is known as a first pass effect. You drink the alcohol in the beer. First of all, it's very low uh, percentage, right? It's only 3.6% like in, um, in, uh, in a beer, all right? And that uh, is about, oh, 60 calories worth or so, 
of, uh, of alcohol. And what happens is that the first pass effect, the uh, stomach and intestine metabolize that alcohol before any of it ever gets to the liver. And so the amount that actually hits the liver that could do damage is exceedingly small. And as long as you're not following up with an, a second beer and a third beer and a fourth beer and a fifth beer, you know, like can happen at the Newcastle pub, you know, you don't usually have a big problem, right? But if you keep doing that, then that is a problem. So it's a dose-dependent phenomenon, and um, your intestine is there to try to protect your liver from getting the onslaught before it will do damage. Same with sugar. No difference. So your intestine can take a small amount of sugar that you consume and can actually turn it into fat in the intestine. Intestinal de novo lipogenesis, the process of converting sugar to fat into VLDL in the intestine so that it will not go straight to your liver, all right? And about 10% of, of an initial sugar bolus will undergo intestinal DNL and therefore be diverted away from the liver and into the bloodstream as VLDL. Now, that VLDL is not great for you because it could ultimately cause heart disease, but it's protecting the liver. But if you consume past your intestine's capacity to do that, now the rest of it's going to end up in your liver. And the problem with sugar in the liver is exactly the same as the problem of alcohol in the liver because it causes the exact same processes. It causes glycation, it causes oxidative stress, it causes mitochondrial dysfunction, and basically drives insulin resistance, this phenomenon that we now know is at the base of virtually all chronic metabolic diseases. Therefore, your pancreas has to make extra insulin to make the liver do its job, because now the liver's not working right because it's been poisoned. And so insulin levels rise all over the body, and now you've got you know, the risk for Alzheimer's, you've got the risk for heart disease, you've got the risk for, virtu uh, for cancer, you've got the risk for virtually every other chronic metabolic disease on the plate. All because of what happened to your liver. Yeah. And fructose, that sweet molecule in sugar, basically has the same fate as alcohol. So, when people say, oh, well, you know, a little sugar's fine, the answer's um, yeah, because your intestine diverts that little bit away from the liver. As soon as you overwhelm that capacity, now your liver is right in the crosshairs. And that's when chronic disease is going to start. Yeah. Rob, you're a pediatrician. Um, I've seen videos of you talking with passion about this exact topic maybe 15 years ago, still online. When was it, when was the first time for you that you started to think, you know, what's going on here? In the book, you have been pretty, um, it's pretty provocative at times. I actually agree with it, so I, so I like it. You've really gone out there, you've sort of, 
you've ripped into modern medicine at times, and we're definitely going to talk about that. Yeah. But when was it? Because you do have this sort of um, incredible passion and energy to get this message out there. And I'm just yeah. wondering, what was it in your clinical experience that actually really got you into thinking there must be another way here, this can't be right? Right. Well, so I had three aha moments. Three. Uh, and that sort of got me to where I am today and why I'm saying what I am saying today. The first aha moment came when I worked at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, a pediatric cancer hospital. And I went there in 1995, and I was presented with a cadre of about 40 children who had survived their brain tumors, you know, because of surgery and radiation, sometimes chemotherapy, who had become massively obese. They were perfectly normal weight before the tumor, and now they were on the order of 350 to 400 pounds. Okay, normal kids before the tumor, and now massively obese. And there's a name for this. It's called hypothalamic obesity. It was first um, you know, written about it, first uh, uh, described in 1901 by Freelich and Babinski, two of the you know, greats of, uh, of, uh, of international neurology. And I had all these kids with hypothalamic obesity that I had to take care of. And like, how do you get them to lose weight? How do you get them to get better? And it had been shown previously that diet and exercise is useless. In fact, George Bray, the father of obesity research in America, in 1975, had taken eight of these kids on his ward and fed them 500 calories a day for a month. What do you think their weight did? Well, you would expect it came down, but I suspect in this case it probably didn't. It went up. Yeah. Okay, 500 calories a day and their weight went up. Like, how does that happen? The answer is it happens because they were burning it slower than they were taking it in. Because their metabolism of calories had actually come to a virtual standstill. So even 500 calories a day was too much. And these kids have like no energy. They sit on a couch. They're not interested in anything. The parents would actually complain that that was the worst thing about this. They'd say, this is double jeopardy. My kid has you know, survived the tumor only to succumb to the therapy because my kid is a lump on a log and he's lost interest in everything. He's lost interest in school. He's lost interest in life. He's lost interest in activity. He's lost interest in friends. He's lost interest in everything. All he wants to do is sit and sleep. And so I had to take care of these kids. So I went to the literature and I said, oh, 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 the other thing was that this was exactly when the hormone leptin yeah. had been discovered. So leptin was discovered in 1994. And I was prepared for that discovery because I worked at Rockefeller University with the guys who discovered it, Jeff Friedman and Rudy Leibel. Okay, we were all the 
MDs at Rockefeller University all you know had to take call in the hospital together. So we were always trading you know call call dates and everything. So everybody knew what everybody else was doing. So I knew that they were trying to clone this you know this hormone you know out of these mice. And so when they did in 1994, I was very prepared for it. So I moved to St. Jude, and I had these kids, and it's like, oh, what am I going to do for them? And I postulated right then that these kids must have leptin resistance. These kids can't see their leptin. And the reason is because their hypothalamus is dead, because we killed it because of the tumor or the surgery or the radiation. And so because they can't see their leptin, their brain thinks they're starving. So the question was, okay, their brain thinks they're starving. Is there, what's downstream of leptin? What's actually making them gain the weight? The starvation is why they're hungry, but what's making them gain the weight? Well, we knew that these kids made a lot of insulin. And we knew that there's this you know, animal model of damaging the hypothalamus, and they put out enormous amounts of insulin. And you could actually stop that by cutting the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the nerve that leads from the brain to the pancreas, and then the insulin would go down. So I said, well, I can't cut their vagus nerve. I'm not a surgeon, and you know that's a little drastic. But what if I gave them a medicine that suppressed their insulin release? And so we gave them a drug called octreotide, a drug that you know is used by endocrinologists to usually suppress growth hormone release, but it also suppresses insulin release. So we repurposed it, and we gave it to these kids, and lo and behold, they started losing weight. In the months since Russia invaded Ukraine, they couldn't lose weight before. You know, George Bray showed they gained weight. They were losing weight, and something even more remarkable happened. They started exercising spontaneously. One kid started competitive swimming. Two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. I mean, these were kids who sat on the couch, ate Doritos, and slept. And now they're active again. And the parents would say, oh, my God, I've got my kid back. And the kid would say, this is the first time my head hasn't been in the cloud since the tumor. Yeah. So something had changed their relationship to the world. Not just their relationship to food, but their relationship to the world. So we said, this is very interesting. So we did a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and this time built a quality of life measure into the protocol. And sure enough, the lower we got the insulin with the drug, not only the more weight they lost, but the more active they were. So what this did, the reason why this is so important and the reason I'm spending so much time on it, Ranga, is because this turns the first law of thermodynamics on its head. Because the standard interpretation of the first law goes like this. You know, the, the first law is, you know, the total energy inside a closed system remains constant. You know, energy can neither be created nor destroyed, just shifted around. Okay? The standard interpretation that we learn in medical school, and the, what, what the general public learns, is if you eat it, you better burn it, 
or are you going to store it? In which case, the storing part, the fat gain, is secondary to the primary problems, which are the eating and the burning, the gluttony and the sloth. Therefore, the weight gain is secondary to the gluttony and the sloth. Therefore, it's about behavior. Fix the behavior, fix the weight. What we showed in these kids was it's exactly the opposite. Turn it around. What we showed was if you're going to store it, that is a high insulin level leading to obligate weight gain, and you expect to burn it, that is normal energy expenditure for normal quality of life, because energy expenditure and quality of life are synonyms for each other, then you're going to have to eat it. And now the storage is primary and the behaviors are secondary. The gluttony and sloth are actually because of leptin resistance. So we get sick first and then the weight comes afterwards. That's right. We get sick first and the weight is secondary. That's exactly right. So this is, you know, monumental. This is huge. Um, but of course, you know, it goes against everything that we are taught and it goes against everything that, you know, doctors routinely believe. But this was my first aha moment. My second aha moment came in 2006. So I realized that insulin was the bad guy and we started then changing what we did in clinic. Instead of worrying about weight, we worried about insulin. We said, get the insulin down any way you can. And that's what my clinic became. It became an insulin reduction clinic. It, didn't be, it wasn't a weight loss clinic. It was an insulin reduction clinic. And when we got the insulin down, then they lost weight. So in 2006, I was asked to give a talk at the NIH, okay, specifically the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. They were having their 100th anniversary of public health. And it was a two-day symposium. The first day was on their successes, like lead poisoning and pollution and asthma, things they'd figured out and you know been able to do something for the public health. And the second day was on challenges. And the morning was going to be obesity, metabolic syndrome, and the afternoon was going to be ADD and autism. Okay. So they asked me to give a talk. What do you think is the single most important environmental exposure that leads to obesity and metabolic syndrome? And I figured that they probably figured I was going to, you know, give a talk about some, you know, like BPA or some other, you know, environmental, you know, toxicant, you know, that's in the water or in the air or, you know, something like that. And I thought, I thought to myself, how am I going to, you know, make this worthwhile? And I thought to myself, all right, wait a second. Let's, let's, let's go backwards here. Children today get two diseases they never got before. Type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. Those two. Children never got those before. Now, lots of kids get them. All right? So, I looked up 
type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. And of course, you know, I know a lot about both of them, but I very specifically looked for origins and causation. And it turns out that in the old days, you know, back in the 1970s, before this pandemic of chronic disease started, those, both, both those diseases were the diseases of alcohol. Type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease were the diseases of alcohol. But kids don't drink alcohol. So I said, all right, is there something they're exposed to that's like alcohol? So I opened up my Leninger, you know, biochemistry textbook from 1974. Sitting at this table that I'm at right now, <laughs> I said, what the hell is like alcohol? And there it was. And stared me right in the friggin' face. Right off the page from 1974. And the answer was fructose. Fructose and alcohol are metabolized virtually identically. And it makes sense that that would be the case, because after all, where do you get alcohol from? Fermentation of fructose. It's called wine. Yeah. We do it in Napa's Sonoma every day. Okay. The big difference between fructose and alcohol is that for alcohol, the yeast does the first step of metabolism called glycolysis. For fructose, we do our own first step of metabolism. But after that, what the mitochondria see are exactly the same, acetyl-CoA. It's just a question of which, which was the substrate. Was it the ethanol or was it the fructose? But ultimately, they end up with the same fate. So it's very clear, all of a sudden, right looking at that right there, that this is the substrate that is driving both the type 2 diabetes and the fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. So I put together a talk and I went to North Carolina and I said, this is what I think's going on and here's why. Half hour talk. And then there was the bathroom break. And you know, I got my applause and then everyone left the room and then come back. You know, I'm standing there at the podium talking with, you know, this person, that person. And no one's coming back for the next session. And then I had to use the bathroom. So I went out, and I actually got tackled in the friggin' bathroom of the NIH by a bunch of crazed toxicologists screaming at me, saying, Oh, my God! Oh, my God! You're right! This makes perfect sense! This is the toxin! You have to tell everyone about this. I guess I'm still doing it. <laughs> I guess you still are. <laughs> so, if the toxicologist went berserk, it might be true. And then that was the so that was the second aha, and then the third aha. We'll be back to the conversation in just a moment. Now, many of us struggle to find time to eat all of these incredible whole foods. That's why I'm a big fan of good quality whole food supplements like this one that's been in my own life for over three years now. It contains over 75 whole food source ingredients, vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and can help us support our energy, focus, digestion, and our immune system. 
Athletic Greens are giving my audience a fantastic offer. One year's free supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first order. You can see all the details at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more or simply click on the link below. Now, back to the conversation. It was not even my aha. It was my colleague's aha, but I, I, I adopted it. So we got very interested in sugar here at UCSF after that. We actually have a group of us who we call the Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> They're actually referenced in, in the book here. Um, but uh, my colleagues, Kristen Carnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glantz, started looking at the paper trail of the food industry back in the 1960s and found the actual paper trail that showed that the food industry paid off scientists to exonerate sugar and finger-saturated fat as the bad guy. We actually found their documents that showed the money transfer and the communications, you know, just like what the January 6th committee is doing now, follow the money. And we, so we actually proved that the sugar industry put their thumb on the scale back in the 1960s to exonerate their product because there had been data that had been coming out at that point showing that sugar was not good for you. In fact, that's what John Yudkin found. Mm. Remember, pure white and deadly. And he had found, you know, shown that data. And so people were starting to cast a, a, a you know, a, a fisheye at, uh, at sugar. And so they had to go into overdrive mode and to, to PR this problem away. And so they approached the chairman of the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health, Fred Stair, and his associate, Mark Hegstead, who ended up becoming the head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture in 1970, to pay them off $6,500 back then, which would be about 50000 today, to write two review articles to appear in the New England Journal of Medicine that basically said saturated fat's the bad guy and sugar is no problem whatsoever. So that's the third aha moment. It's all a scam. The whole thing's a put-up job. And that's why I wrote Metabolical. Sugar and alcohol. I don't think people commonly would put the two things together. People, I think, like, you know, Joe Public, I think, would, would think, okay, alcohol, I know, if I drink too much, it's not good for me, it's going to cause problems with my liver. I think there's that understanding. And if I drink a little bit, have some days off a week, you know, you know, the odd glass of wine here and there is probably not going to be too bad for me. I think is what most people tend to think. That's true. And, 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 that, and if that were the case, that would be true. And that's true for about the 40% of Americans who are social drinkers. You know, 40% of teetotalers don't touch this stuff. Okay, 40% of social drinkers can pick up a beer, put it down like me. Okay, but 10% are binge drinkers and 10% are hardcore alcoholics. Yeah. But I don't think people think of sugar in the same way in terms of what it does for the liver. Um, and, and I think that's... That's a really, I think, eye-opening comparison for a lot of people. The other thing you said, which I think really beautifully ties into the start of this conversation, is that you started running an insulin reduction clinic. Right. And 
you know, like you, I'm very passionate in root causes and right. this right. idea that we've labelled all these so-called separate diseases. We get taught about them at medical school as though they're all separate entities. For this disease, you, you right. take this drug and you have this sort of treatment and we look at that downstream pathology, don't we? But you mentioned mitochondria at the start in terms of what sugar or excess sugar can do to mitochondria and that, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction sits at the heart of so many different conditions but also insulin resistance, right? So that insulin resistance, that insulin lowering clinic actually would probably, depending on who was coming in, I appreciate you're a pediatrician, but if, if all of us as doctors ran insulin reduction clinics, we would get rid of 75% of the chronic disease in, America, in, in the world. Exactly. It's that root cause again, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I took completely agree, which is what I'm trying to, you know, uh, bring to, you know, medicine. Unfortunately, you know, medicine is provincial. Medicine doesn't, you know, uh, respond very well to, you know, new ideas. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's a cartel, if you will. You're very um, critical of modern medicine in the book. You say modern medicine treats symptoms. Uh, you say modern medicine is not you the solution. I do indeed, and I, I agree with this. It's it's something I'm. It's one of my big frustrations in my what now twenty twenty one year career seeing patients. It's like, you know, you know. I sometimes wonder if doctors honestly ask themselves sometimes at the end of their day. And obviously, it depends where you work. I'm not talking about intensive care. I'm talking about you know chronic patients that. And I did this once, Rob. I, I did this in general practice once. I asked myself at the end of the day, how many patients do you honestly think you've really helped today? And you know, quite a few years ago, it was 20%. I thought, I've only helped 20% of people. The other 80%, I've done something. I've, I've sent them off for a test. I've you know, referred them or I've given them a drug. But I kind of knew they'd be back. I thought, I'm not really getting to the heart of this problem. I knew it. And I kind of feel the patient knew it as well. And that's kind of one of the things that led me on this journey to try and understand that there must be a different way. And, you know, that's why I think Metabolical is such a wonderful book. It, it outlines the history, it outlines the science, but it also gives some really practical solutions. And, you know, I love your, you know, we mentioned the liver a lot so far. So one of your big messages in the book is protect the liver and feed the gut. Right in terms of dietary advice for people. And, you know, a lot's been written about food in the past, but that's that's very fresh, I think. That's quite a new idea for people. And I wonder if you could explain then, what, what do you mean protect the liver and feed the gut? Sure, well, uh, uh, before we go into protect the liver, feed the gut, because that'll take up the whole rest of our podcast is, you know, explaining all that. I want to just address the whole medical school thing. You know, and, and, and you know how you felt as a doctor. Me too. The bottom line is, you know, we uh, treat medicine, and and unfortunately, medical schools treat medicine like a big game of Clue. You know, uh, Colonel Mustard in the conservatory with the candlestick. Match the um, uh, symptom card with the diagnosis card with the treatment card, and discharge your patient. In fact, in 1980, there was a game that we used to play in residency, you know, on like Sunday mornings before things got busy in the ER, called Intern. 
And that was what you did. You basically took your symptom, you, you got a symptom card, you got a diagnostic card, and you got a treatment card. And once you got the three of them together, you got rid of the patient first, uh, you know, player to discharge, you know, to discharge all their patients won the game, you know. And that's how we treated it. So, you know, these diseases, you know, got a got a, a meningitis. Here's an antibiotic. You know, got a. Um, uh, you know, cancer, here's a chemotherapy, you know, but the fact is chronic disease doesn't, you know, really fit into that. Yeah. There are, there are eight, count them, eight chronic diseases that have completely taken over modern medicine. Eight. And here they are. Type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, those eight. That those eight now account together for 75% of all healthcare costs. And none of them have a cure. None of them even have a treatment. But they all have a prevention. We're not preventing it. We're handing out, you know, um, you know, uh, statins or, you know, oral hypoglycemics or, you know, antihypertensives, you know, like candy, but that's treating the symptoms, you know, the manifestations of the disease, not actually treating the cause. And the reason is because those diseases are not really the diseases. What's yeah. going on underneath to cause all eight of those diseases are exactly the same. They're just in different organs. And here are the eight things that I outline in the book, what I call the diseases that are not diseases. I call them the hateful eight. And here they are. Okay. And these are things that people don't know because they don't have ICD-11 codes. And doctors don't know what to do about them, so they don't even mention them. So no one's ever heard of them. And they didn't learn them in medical school either. So here they are, eight. Number one, glycation. Number two, oxidative stress. Number three, mitochondrial dysfunction. Number four, insulin resistance. Number five, membrane instability. Number six, inflammation. Number seven, methylation. Number eight, autophagy. Now, these are all normal phenomena that happen, but they can be speeded up or slowed down by what you eat. Now, it turns out when you have control over all eight of those things, you will be 110 playing tennis. And when you don't have control over those eight things, you will be 40 years old in a wheelchair with two stumps on dialysis waiting for your next stroke. And, of course, everything in between. So those are the choices. Those are the options. And because none of those eight, the hateful eight that I just mentioned, any of, none of them have a cure. None of them even have a treatment. They only have a prevention. We're not preventing anything. And that's why you felt like you were not helping any of your patients, because you weren't addressing those eight root causes that you yourself know to be the big problem in medicine. It's like, a, it's like a leaking roof, isn't it? The, the roof's leaking and you just putting a bucket there to pick up the water. That's kind of what the drugs are doing. Yeah, they, it's great. It's, there's no water there on the floor, so you can live a, bit, a little bit better. But 
you're not getting to the, the cause, right? You need to fix the leak in the roof, and then actually you no well, longer you need the buckets. Right, well, and you won't have, the problem is if you don't fix the leak in the roof, you won't have a house. Yeah. That was one of my favorite parts of the book, these eight processes that are occurring in all of us, and they're either promoting health and longevity, or they're actually the opposite. the opposite and creating illness and ultimately disease. And I really love the way you said that actually medicines aren't really tackling those things. And I just want to be really clear for people that Antihypertensives or um, you know drugs in general, they have a role sometimes, right? They can be helpful in certain situations. I think you're in agreement with that. It's just we I'm over. Not, I'm not against them. Yeah. Okay, I'm not against them per se, but the problem is that if you don't fix the underlying problem, what have you done? So it's fine to give a statin to lower an LDL, but what have you done? Have you actually fixed the problem? You haven't done a damn thing about the problem. The problem's still there. Okay. So um, it, you know, the very first the very first sentence of the book, okay, starts like this: You find a wasp in your attic. What do you do? Kill the wasp or find the wasp's nest. You have to work upstream of a problem to solve a problem. Working downstream of a problem only fixes the result of the problem. The problem's still there. And if you don't, if you can, you can kill the wasp, but then the next time you go up into the attic, you're gonna be stung into submission by all the other wasps. Yeah because you didn't fix the problem. I, I think we, we really need to, I, I want to make sure everyone listening and watching this has got this, that what you're talking about is really at the heart of pretty much every single chronic disease that's going on at the moment, that is afflicting families, it's overwhelming healthcare systems, it's causing uh, disability, it's causing you know reduction in the quality of life. And actually most of them are caused by you know, malfunction in these eight in these eight areas, but ultimately, what you're making a very strong case for is that it's actually the modern food environment, this highly ultra-processed food that we are consuming in inordinate quantities, is actually at the root cause. And unless we deal with that as a root cause, we're going to be struggling. People are going to be suffering. Healthcare systems are going to be suffering, and we're not going to get anywhere. Your 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 intro to the book was. It, it literally was so punchy. Like, we could just do a podcast on the introduction, frankly. But I, there's a couple of bits I've underlined, which, I, if you don't mind me reading it back to you, your own book. I, I, so, I so appreciate that you called my intro punchy, because several people on, you know, Amazon have said, you know, he, all he did was rant. But, uh, you know, I guess it depends on how concerned you are about the problem. Yeah. And this is, this is such a big problem. Like, it's arguably the biggest problem that's going on across the globe at the moment because well and you see in your kids that. right you see kids i i see kids and when you see a seven-year-old 
with pre-diabetes, like, this wasn't happening 20, 25 years ago. Something is going on and we can't just give them metformin or what, we have to try and figure out what's causing this. Canaries, the kids are the canaries in the coal mine. And if you ignore it, you know, you do it at your own risk. That's just that simple. And that's what we're doing. We've done. We've ignored it. Um, the other thing is that everybody right now is completely distracted. Okay? They're distracted by this thing called COVID. Okay, and I understand why. And, you know, it's, just, it's certainly distracting. However, let's talk about that for a minute. Okay? People are dying in droves in every country. UK, US, you know, you name it. Do you know why they're not dying? They're not dying in countries that actually still have real food. Third world countries actually have a very low death rate. And it's not because they're using masks or um, hand washing, you know, or social distancing. The reason is because they're eating real food. We have the data on mortality rates of the different countries. I can put it up on the screen if you want. But the bottom line is, it's only the developed countries that have the high mortality rates. Now, why is that? So, we've identified the elderly, and they have immune dysfunction. We understand that. They can't generate the same cytokine response that, you, you know, that, that, that everyone else should be able to. Okay, let's put the elderly aside for a moment, because that's true everywhere. It was true in Italy, too. But the other three things, the other three demographics that were shown to be, you know, uh, related to COVID mortality, here they are. People of color, the obese, and pre-existing conditions. Those three. People of color, the obese, pre-existing conditions. What do those three demographics share in common? Probably poor socioeconomic conditions, um, poor diet, lots of highly poor processed diet. food. Right, ultra-processed food consumption. Crappy diet, ultra-processed food consumption. So why should your food make a difference as to whether you die from COVID or not? Why is that? Here's why. Three reasons. Number one, the virus is very smart. It wants to attack all your cells. And every cell in your body has a receptor that helps regulate water within the cell. And that receptor is called ACE2, A-C-E-2, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. It's an endocrine receptor. Okay, and that's where angiotensin works and involves water transport. All right, so every cell has it. Turns out the uh, virus uses that protein as its injector point. Well, high insulin increases ACE2 because high insulin causes water retention. And so there are more ACE2s on all your cells, so you are more at risk of being infected when your insulin's high, and your insulin's high because of processed food. That's one. Number two, diabetes, high blood glucose. High blood glucose, turns out the glucose actually crystallizes around the edges of those ACE2s, holding them open, making it even easier for the virus to inject its RNA. Number three, short chain fatty acids. 
So short-chain fatty acids come from fiber consumption. And of course, ultra-processed food is devoid of fiber. Short-chain fatty acids suppress the cytokine response. And we now know it's not the virus that kills you. It's your cytokine response that kills you because your cytokine response is basically sort of like a nuclear blast that affects even your normal cells, but it's trying to get rid of the foreign invader. But you have to temper it. You have to be able to manage it. You have to be able to pull it back. You have to be able to uh, uh, um, minimize it. Short-chain fatty acids that come from the um, digestion of fiber in the gut are one of the things that improves that cytokine response. And that's why um, uh, fiber is anti-inflammatory and also improves insulin sensitivity. But processed food doesn't have any fiber. It's been, you know, that's been removed for shelf life. So those three demographics, people of color, the obese, pre-existing conditions, big ultra-processed food consumers, high sugar, low fiber, processed food, not real food, the CDC and the NIH and the MRC and every and everyone and Public Health England, no one is talking about food in COVID. Yeah. This is the fourth leg of the stool. Okay? We all talk about masking and hand washing and social distancing. Garbage. Fix the food. Now I think when we're talking about foods, I think we need to get clear on terminology for people who are listening and they think okay look i get this highly processed food is at the root cause of many of these chronic diseases over half of what we're consuming as a country as a western society are these foods so i guess we need to really help people understand you know what are these foods there's this part of the introduction where you actually i've underlined it you said what if this slow consumable poison looks like everything else in the store how do you protect yourself? And that's kind of part of the problem, isn't it? I don't, it's so normalized that I think many people don't really understand anymore, well, what is a processed food? What is real food, you know? So can you help us try and understand that? Right, yeah, one of the first questions we ask in, in clinic, you know, we used to ask is, you know, mom, you know, the, the, the mom and the kid come in, you know, for, for you know, uh, obesity clinic, and we ask, uh, you know, mom, you know, what do you consider food? You know, do you, do you think Cheetos is food? If you think Cheetos is food, then basically nothing's going to help you. So that's the first thing we do is we disavow them of this concept of this knowledge. So what we did in our clinic to be effective, and we actually studied this, we published on it, we validated it as an instrument. What we did was we uh, took all newcomers, all new referrals to our clinic, and we did a teaching breakfast. So these kids came in fasting, you know, so we could get comorbidity and safety labs. And we, you know, they saw the doctor, they got their blood drawn, they got their physical exam, and then they went to the teaching breakfast. Six kids, six parents around a table, one dietitian. English and Spanish, uh, different, you know, different times. All right, so that everybody, you know, got a teaching breakfast, and we got a hundred dollar gift certificate from Trader Joe's every month to basically buy the food for the teaching breakfast. And of course, our dietitian went out and bought the, the right stuff, not the wrong stuff. <laughs> and we would then, she would then narrate for, an, or he would narrate for an hour 
why these foods were on the table for breakfast and why the stuff they were buying at home was the wrong stuff. Okay, and we would explain insulin and we would show them how much sugar was in each of the things that they were getting at home and versus, you know, what, what was on the table. And four things had to come out of that, and we actually um, validated this. Four points, four different points that conferred success. Number one, the parent had to see the kid would eat the food. Number two, the parent had to see the parent would eat the food. Number three, the parent had to see other kids would eat the food, because they got other kids at home. Number four, we showed them the bill, they had to see they could afford the food. <laughs> all four. If we got all four boxes ticked, those patients did well. And then there's no going back. So this was a training moment. This was a teaching moment. This was a way we could explain to, to parents and to kids what was going on and model for them so they can do see one, do one, teach one, more like we always do in medical school. If you tell people what to do, they will not do it. If you show people what to do and they do it, then they'll do it again. Yeah. And not until. The term real foods, I like it, you use it, but it does get a bit of pushback from certain academics and you know, I saw one, I think on Instagram just a couple of weeks ago, a very prominent uh, researcher in obesity in the UK, um, denigrating the term, saying it smacks of privilege, it's, you know, all, yeah. all kinds of things about it. And here's the thing, you know, you know, my view, Bob, is that I found it to be very useful with my patients. Of course, if my patients don't like it, I'd come up with something else that, that they understand. Um, but generally speaking, I think the things like, you know, would your grandparents recognize it as food? I think people find it quite helpful. Or does the food packet have more than five ingredients on it or not? As a kind of general rough rule, they're not perfect, but they're all kind of guidelines to try and help people make sense of this ultra processed food environment in which they're living. And I kind of, I wonder why there's so much criticism. It's like, these things are there to help people. If you find it helpful, great. If you don't, fine, use something else. But I don't, like, I find a lot of people, particularly in medicine and academia, look down on these kind of, uh, what are considered simplistic terms. Yeah, I, I, I've heard 